Hi, my name's Madalena Kay, and I'm the host of the podcast AI and You, produced by Europod in partnership with Podium Podcast, Agence France Press, and Cora Media. In AI and You, we deal with the history of AI and how it is having an impact on our lives. From social relationships to employment, from climate change to wars and security. Is AI changing our world for the better or the worse? Come and check it out for yourself. Subscribe to AI and You wherever you listen to podcasts. I think what really worried me at the time was people who are in my position, and many, many people are. At the moment, there's 280,000 people stuck in the backlog of waiting to have their decisions made on their EU settlement scheme. And many people don't even know their rights, much less are able to articulate them. Brexit has made the headlines of the European and British press for years. However, today, the relationship between the UK and the EU is less of a central topic in public debates. Nevertheless, many European citizens' lives have been heavily affected by Brexit. This is mostly due to the lengthy and intricate process for obtaining settlement status in the UK. In particular, anecdotal evidence appears to highlight that European citizens of color are suffering the most from the consequences of Brexit. In October this year, in the UK, a non-profit organization was born under the name of Black Europeans. Black Europeans' mission is to challenge systemic racism in the post-Brexit migration policies and to create a safe environment by breaking down barriers for Black Europeans to thrive. Welcome to Europe Talks Back, a podcast that shines a light on often unreported stories from across Europe. My name is Alexander Damian Ricci. Coming up next in this podcast, how Black Europeans in the UK are trying to challenge systemic racism in the post-Brexit era. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We'll be right back. My name is Dahaba Ali Hussein. I am a multimedia journalist living and working in the UK. I recently went freelance, but I have worked staff at places like the BBC, Sky News um, and ITV, working across print, digital, radio and TV. I came to the UK aged 10 from the Netherlands. My mother fled the Somali civil war in the late 1990s and sought asylum in the Netherlands. I was born there, so I'm actually Dutch. And then 10 years later, we moved to the UK. Dahaba Ali Hussein is a 29 years old journalist based in London. Despite her young age and the fact that she arrived in the United Kingdom when she was 10 and could not speak English at the time, Dahaba has carved out a successful journalistic career in the UK. But how did the journey of this Dutch reporter begin? I grew up in North London, where I went to a string of underperforming state schools until the age of 18, when I was fortunate enough to be granted a scholarship at the University of Cambridge. 
and then I moved back to London, started my journalism career, and here we are. Starting from scratch, and just after two decades of living in the UK, Dahaba made herself a name in the field of journalism as a reporter covering politics and immigration. She herself is a migrant in London. Legally, Dahaba is Dutch. Although nowadays she feels more related to Britain. As Dahaba explains to us, her multifaceted identity was not on her mind until Brexit happened. There's no bilateral agreement between the UK and the Netherlands. So you can't be both Dutch and British. You have to give up your Dutch passport and naturalize. And I haven't done that yet, so I'm still Dutch. I think I was confronted with the idea of having to choose or even having to consider whether I felt more Dutch or more British when Brexit happened. Before then, I was just about, well, my nationality is Dutch, but I'm also connected to my local community, which is London. But I think that it's interesting, actually. I don't think I would, I would never call myself not Dutch, but as I spend more time in the UK, I'm feeling increasingly more connected to Britain. But I don't think that you should have to choose, really. Back in 2016, Dahaba didn't think Brexit would pass, nor that her life as a migrant coming from the Netherlands and with Somali roots would change. Unluckily, it did. So I rather naively didn't think Brexit would pass the referendum. I didn't think people would, would vote in favour of it. And then when I found out, I thought, oh my goodness. The total number of votes cast in favour of leave was 17 million. 410,742. Now, I remember talking to people and being like, oh, well, you know, this does mean that my future in the UK is uncertain as an EU citizen, because it wasn't certain at the time. And everyone would be like, oh, well, well, everyone would be almost like taking a step back by it. Like, I remember being in a, in a club a few weeks afterwards and we're talking to these group of people that we just met and a few of them had voted Brexit and I just turned around to them and I was like well do you know what that means for Easterns living in the UK and they were like oh but you'll be fine won't you like you'll be fine you'll be fine and it was that cognitive dissonance that was quite stark to me that was people thought that Brexit wouldn't affect them in their immediate lives and they wouldn't affect people that they would immediately encounter It made my future in the UK feel really uncertain. And I was really worried for people like my mother as a former refugee. I was worried about how, you know, what her immigration story would look like and if we would be able to stay. The harbour's uncertainty became a real fear quite soon. Following Brexit, all EU citizens living in the UK had to apply for the so-called EU Settlement Scheme. This is a permission granted by the British Home Office for those willing to remain in the country, just like the Haber. However, it was denied to her, despite having a job and a settled life in the UK, since the age of 10. So I was actually rejected for the EU settlement scheme despite being in the UK since I was 10 and barely leaving, even to go on holiday, to be honest. And I was rejected because apparently there were gaps in my residence. And 
My rejection actually meant that I was living in limbo for two years whilst I waited for the right, correct decision to be made after I reapplied having been rejected. And then it actually culminated earlier in this year in me losing my right to work in the UK. I had a brand new job as a political reporter and I actually lost that because the Home Office didn't verify my right to work. Until September 2022, the UK government ruled over 6.7 million applications for the EU settlement scheme. According to their statistics, only half of the applicants received a settled status, while 40% were given pre-settled status and 10% were rejected. The harbour was among the latest. Could her Somali roots have played a role? Would her journey have been different if she were not a young black woman? Unfortunately, no one can get the data behind whether or not the Home Office EU settlement scheme adversely affects black or brown people. But there is a wealth of anecdotal evidence, particularly from changemakers working in the field, as well as organisations who say that actually black and brown people are being adversely affected by the EU settlement scheme. We are the ones who are being offered pre-settled status when we are entitled to full settled status. We are the ones who are stuck in the backlog and we are the ones who are being offered more rejections than our white counterparts. The rejection of a settled status could have also ended up with the Haba being deported. But when she reapplied, society gave her the boost that the UK institutions denied her in the first place. I can safely say that Brexit has affected my life, especially considering that obviously we don't know what, what would have happened, but there was every chance that I would have lost access to public funds and services, that I did lose my job, and I would have potentially even been deported if the correct decision hadn't been made. And the only reason that the correct decision was made, I believe, is because I made a big social media fuss and because of my platform and because I am a political journalist. Numerous national newspapers and publications and news platforms carried the story. So many MPs got involved. And actually, I got my case sorted in about three days, which is very quick, especially if you consider that two of those days was the weekend. Luckily enough, her migration nightmare ended thanks to her public position. The Guardian, the Huffington Post and the Independent were some of the major media that covered the Habas case. But the Habas story is just one in thousands, many of whom belong to people of color and with less resources to fight. I think what really worried me at the time was people who are in my position and many, many people are. At the moment, there's 280,000 people stuck in the backlog of waiting to have their decisions made on their EU settlement scheme. And many people don't even know their rights, much less are able to articulate them. We'll be right back. Angelo Boccato is an Afro-Italian-Caribbean freelance journalist based in London since 2013. His work has been featured in the Columbia Journalism Review, The Independent, The Byland Times, Equal Times, Open Democracy, Tribune Magazine and the Media Diversity Institute. Today, Angelo is a member of Black Europeans, an organization which has as its mission to challenge systemic racism in the post-Brexit migration policies. With Angelo, we discussed the situation of European citizens and more specifically European citizens of color in the UK. So this is me speaking to Angelo Boccato. So Angelo, we brought you in to discuss a bit more broadly the situation of 
EU citizens of color, but initially also EU citizens in the UK after this really interesting chat with the Hava we had in the first part, where she really explains her own story, right? And But I wanted to start this conversation with you asking you if you could briefly break down for us a timeline of how Brexit unfolded for Europeans in the UK after the referendum in 2016. So which are the key milestones to understand the issue we're discussing here today? Uh, so, yes, in order to summarize it, when it comes to how Brexit has affected Europeans since 2016, I would say that um, there have been several lengthy, lengthy negotiations that between you and, and British, British government, several British governments that we have seen because... So we had, there was a long transition period and there was a decision of creating this settlement fundamentally so European citizens could access then pre-settled status if they're leaving the country for five years and settled status for all of those who had lived in the country for five years or more. So the deadline for application was 30 of June 2021. A significant issue around settled status is that there's no paper trail. Basically, there's been a significant backlog on this. And also another problem is represented by the fact that because there's not a paper trail, there's not a specific document that can prove that someone has access and has gained uh, a set of status. Therefore, what happens is that there's been a lot of people that have been left in limbo and a lot of people are still waiting for the results of their own applica- of their applications. So concretely, how does this impact or has it impacted the life of... European citizens in the UK? Obviously, this creates all sorts of problems because, in theory, um, when you fly, uh, for instance, your passport is connected to your applications. But the problem is that for many, especially those who are still waiting the resolution, when it comes to access to the NHS, the national health system, applying for jobs, applying for any sort of benefits, all of this has been, very, been made very complicated by the fact that there's no... As there's no paper, there's no document that you can send directly. You will get a document by email, I got it, showing that your application has been successful. But that document, and that's quite troubling, that document can be used to prove that you have been successful in your application. That's kind of the approach that the British government chose to fundamentally inflict on EU citizens, really. So do we have the exact figures of how many people applied for settlement status in the UK? There were 5,570,160 applications received by, from your EU nationals and 60,320 60, received from other uh, European economic area and Swiss nationals and uh, 420,050 received from uh, non-EEA nationals vis-à-vis um, statistics from the EU settlement scheme from the government June 2021. Right. We have this really laborious process to get settlement status in the UK for EU citizens. But in this episode, we wanted really to focus or try to give a focus on the cause of Black Europeans, which is this not-profit organization that is casting a light on the special condition of Black Europeans or Europeans of color in the UK to be able to settle in the UK for good. Can you tell us about the objectives of Black Europeans and what it aims for? So uh, Black European was launched uh, last month in, because uh, October is Black History Month in the UK. 
I'm afraid had the significance to be connected with that. And it was launched by uh, Aki Achi, as our founder is uh, French. And uh, Aki has had, uh, spent a certain amount of his commitment and, uh, into reaching out to European institutions, pointing out that uh, when it came to the uh, end of the transition period, uh, it would have been particularly problematic for non-white Europeans. And in fact, many of the stories are coming in the media and uh, have also been collected by other organizations uh, they often affect people who still have to receive a decision of a settled status and so on, are often you citizen of color. The focus is, uh, I could say, is double-layered in a certain way. The main focus will be on the British government and to ensure that all European citizens, uh, black European citizens, are kind of, uh, when it comes to their application and their rights, these are ensured. Uh, that's the main so that's the um, focus for what concerns the European, the British government. For what concerns European institutions, the focus is to ensure that um, there is an attention and a scrutiny focused not only on, uh, let's say, to generalize white citizen, white European citizens in the UK and their rights, but also all European citizens and their rights. Um, because if we really need to be united in diversity, that has to be that has to apply to everyone who has a European passport fundamentally. And as as of now, this hasn't really happened. And listen, Angelo, do we have any figures who back up this claim by Black Europeans that this is impacting mostly Europeans of color? This is a quite complicated issue, uh, mostly because uh, different countries, different member states, have different approaches. Obviously, uh, for instance, like the UK is probably one of the countries that follow one of the most elaborated approaches to minorities, more similar to the approach we will see in the United States. But we see, we know that France is a country that's not really working on the front, also linking to back to the old process of uh, assimilation of uh, minorities in the country. You know that Italy doesn't have any kind of census that highlights uh, diversity. So uh, this is something that Black Europeans are looking into, of course, but it is a very uh, complex uh, matter, specifically because not all European member states uh, recognize diversity, and by recognizing it, they also not all European states want to actually look into the numbers, and therefore this data tend to be uh, missing, but it's something is a front we are working on, and it's something that we definitely want to highlight uh, in order to ensure that Black European voices are heard and represented and encountered. Um, listen, just to, to close this discussion, setting up a dedicated NGO signals, in my opinion, potentially the absence of proper political representation for Black Europeans in the UK. So one would look, you know, ideally to the Labour Party today because it's more a bit of a position party, has been opposing to some extent stronger Brexit than the Conservatives, I would say. But is there a problem of representation in the political landscape for Black Europeans today? And uh, why, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I would say that, uh, yes, I would say the Black Europeans, uh, yes, they're not as politically represented. And I would say that even Black Britons are still are also not as much represented in the House of Commons. And 
Therefore, yes. Therefore, yes, I will say that this is definitely an issue. And I think this is also reflected in the fact that quite often being seen as black European in the United Kingdom might make people raise their eyebrows a little bit in the way that it's kind of surprising to some. But I think, once again, this goes back to the way in which the identities and the kind of composition of different countries are seen. I think about Italy, but I think about I think about other countries as well. But and uh, yeah, so the aim is also of for Black Europeans is also to definitely reach out to political actors in the UK, Black MPs, and everyone who may be sympathetic to the cause and the struggle to highlight the rights of Black Europeans and make sure that they're visible. So to close, Angelo, this Black Europeans initiative comes on the back of several years which have seen also the appearance of Black Lives Matters movements across Europe. So I was just wondering how do you relate as an initiative to these other things and movements that happened across Europe in different European countries? Um, I believe that is important to, it's crucial to put together different identities in this. And I think, especially when it comes to the European continent, knowing everything we've seen with the movements of Black Lives Matter, Uh, and the focus uh, in 2020, not only on solidarity with African-Americans, brothers and sisters such, but also with Afro-Europeans, brothers and sisters, really, I think has a lot to do with the fact that we are here as Black Europeans, Afro-Europeans, Afro-Europeans, the label, everyone can pick the label, prefer, I'm talking, as I'm talking on behalf of Black Europeans, I was also I'm focusing on uh, our prospect. Um, And also we have our own struggles to uh, stand for, but I think it's also important to build bridges and uh, highlight similarities between different countries and so on. But let's just say we're not going anywhere and we'll stand for our rights in the UK and elsewhere. We'll be right back. You can follow Angelo Bocat on Twitter at ang underscore Boc. That's ang underscore B-O-K. Likewise, you can follow Dahaba Ali Hussein on Twitter at Dahaba Ali Hussein. That's D-A-H-A-B-A-A-L-I-H-U-S-S-E-N. To check out Black Europeans, visit black-europeans.webnode.co.uk. That's black-europeans.webnode.co.uk. And this is it for this week's episode of Europe Talks Back. The producer of Europe Talks Back is Antoine Lereux. Sound design is by Jeremy Bocquet. Editing and mixing is by Jeremy Bocquet and Thomas Kosberg. Editorial work and script writing by Maria Dios and myself. Promotion and marketing by Bianca Bittencourt. My name is Alexander Damiano Ricci. We'll be back next Friday. <laughs>